Mr. Speaker. You're at the intersection of business and politics. This is the 14th and G podcast from Millman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Now, here's our host, Dean Hinkson. Thank you for setting your podcast out of 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson, coming to you from the offices of Melman, Cassignetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Here at the intersection of business and politics, I'm really excited about my guests today who are bringing issues to the attention of policymakers in a different way. They are incredibly smart folks at IBM's Policy Lab, thinking through how technology can enable solutions to some of society's toughest challenges and what policymakers ought to do about it. And I'm really looking forward to talking about one of the most deeply interesting parts of the ongoing tech revolution, one where IBM is at the forefront, and that's quantum computers. Please don't touch your dial if you don't know what lattice-based cryptography, hash trees, multivariate equations, or super-singular isogeny elliptic curves are. Well, neither do I, and I don't aim to find out here, but there are some incredible things happening. They're happening right now as we move on from the digital ones and zeros and into, well, let's find out. I'm pleased to welcome Ryan Hageman, co-director of IBM's Policy Lab, Ryan, welcome to 14th and G. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dean. It's great to be here. Well, Ryan, step back here for a second before we get into the nitty-gritty of what you're doing. IBM is sort of this iconic American company uh, over a century old in technology. And today it's technology more than anything that defines us and how we operate in the world. I'm curious what your place in that universe, what IBM's place in that universe for so long, it really tells us about technology in 21st century American life. Yeah, well, I think it's a kind of a big question, but I think the simplest answer to it shows that IBM is evolutionary and we're very much open to and committed to the idea of changing along with the times. You can't be a company as old as we are. If you're not willing to try new things and change direction when the needs of you know society and the times demand it, right? Um, and I think especially in this day and age over the last 25 or 30 years or so, we've seen punctuated incidents of rapid technological change and disruption. And so I think the fact that IBM has been around for so long and continues to thrive and prosper as a company and as an iconic brand in modern American industry is a clear indicator that, you know, there are lessons that we can show some of the newcomers on the block. And I think there's a lot that we have to contribute to promote new technological change that in many cases we ourselves are behind. Well, one of the ways you're doing that is your operation where you're co-director of the Policy Lab. Your CEO, uh, Jeannie Rometty, announced its creation at the World Economic Forum back at the start of 2020. It was an actual in-person event uh, right before the world ended. Tell me about the Policy Lab. What, what are you guys hoping to achieve? My clients, a lot of the folks listening to this podcast are very familiar with a corporate policy shop that goes up to the hill and advocates for things the company cares about. The Policy Lab's different. How? Yeah, so I think that's a pretty good distinction. I mean, mostly what we're familiar with in sort of industry and policy is lobbying, representing industries, business interests before policymakers on a day-to-day basis. Where the Policy Lab, I think, changes things around a little bit is we kind of think of it as IBM's internal policy think tank. So we separate it from a lot of the day-to-day kind of lobbying and advocacy work that we do, and we use it as a vessel to communicate some of our thought leadership on some of the bigger policy ideas of the day. 
And so you've made a series of uh, recommendations. You've published a series of papers, uh, topics from facial recognition and artificial intelligence to digital trade policy, uh, and even uh, one on combating uh, domestic abuse, how, how technology can enable a solution there. I was really fascinated with uh, one of the pieces you co-authored uh, on quantum computing. Start with the basics, because we, we hear these terms all the time, uh, like quantum computing. But what is it? How is it different than a classic computer? It's not just a faster computer, is it? No, and I'll, I'll put this in relatively simple terms. But if you think of the foundation of classic computing as basically zeros and ones, every piece of data, every piece of you know, information that you have out there, the way you interact with computers, iPhones, whatever it may be, everything is zeros and ones. They're bits, right? Whereas with quantum computing, we have these things called qubits. So a qubit is different from a bit in that it's probabilistic. And what I mean by that is if you think of a quarter and you flip a quarter. It can either be heads or it can be tails. That's classic computing, right? Zeros and ones. It's either this or it's that. But with quantum computing, think of flipping the quarter up in the air or spinning it on the table. Everything it is at any given moment could be either a zero or a one or anything in between. That is basically what we're talking about when we're talking about quantum computing. So that's probabilistic versus what we would think of with classical computing, which is more deterministic. And so what does that mean? What are the benefits of quantum computing over what we use as a classical computer, whether it be our iPhone or our laptop? So it's basically, at its simplest, it is a quicker way to solve complex problems. But it's also an easier way to solve problems that otherwise classic computers probably couldn't solve. So think of a maze. If you're trying to get through the maze and you don't know where the endpoint is, you're going to run around the maze. You're going to find a lot of dead ends until you finally find the right path out of the maze. That's sort of how classic computing does processing. It tries to find all the solutions in sequence to a particular problem. What a quantum computing and what qubits and this idea of superposition, right, the idea of the spinning quarter in the air essentially, can do is it can assess all of those potential solutions at once, which is a little tough, I know, to sort of, you know, wrap your mind around because it's just not the way that things have been done traditionally in computing. But that's essentially, to use an analogy, the way that we would be seeing the difference between how classic computers work versus how a quantum computer would work to solve problems. Basically, no, where I know the quantum, the term quantum from is quantum physics, and that's just subatomic, right? It's, it's below the atomic level. Is there something there that the computer uses in a physical way that implicates the subatomic world? So, short answer is yes, right? It, that is essentially how a quantum computer is operating. It is operating at a quantum level, right? And when you get to a quantum level that's small in sort of the natural world, a lot of weird things start to happen. A lot of the traditional properties of the natural world don't seem to hold in sort of the same way that we would expect them to if you're looking at, you know, atoms and on up. And so quantum computing is how we kind of harness some of the irregularities in the natural world to you know, potentially benefit people's daily lives. And we do that with a lot of complex hardware production and innovation that I, I'm probably not the one to explain <laughs> too deeply, but we do a lot of things like um, you know, creating incredibly cold environments to kind of isolate and stabilize some of those quantum bits that we're talking about working with here um, and making sure that they don't sort of spin out of control maybe a little bit, uh, maybe a poor way to frame it. But 
you know, ways that we can sort of harness the power of the quantum state of, of qubits and keep them relatively stable so they can do the things that we want them to do. And so what do we want them to do? It's, uh, you, could, you could see applications for medicine, for engineering, for all sorts of things. I mean, what are we seeing in the early phase of quantum computing that benefits, I guess, uh, public life? So I think I'd start by just noting that quantum computers are not at the stage where we're going to see them, you know, in our smartphone devices anytime soon. And that's okay because most of the benefits we can see in the early stage probably don't have anything to do with people in terms of how they live their day-to-day lives. It's not going to improve your Google Maps function. It's not going to improve the graphics rendering of, you know, computer hardware for things like video games and things like that. What it's going to do is it's going to, I think, first and foremost, over the next five to ten years, uh, provide a lot of benefits um, in kind of a hidden way to consumers. So enterprise sort of solutions to big problems. So if you think of something like drug discovery. Drug discovery is a very complicated process. It, it often involves modeling chemicals and molecules in ways that we haven't thought of before in order to discover, you know, new molecular compositions that can go into new drugs that treat things like, you know, everything from Alzheimer's to Castle syndrome and things like that. But it's a complex process. And, you know, currently it takes a long time to model a lot of these types of drugs. So what quantum computing can do is it can rapidly increase the pace at which we're able to achieve those sorts of models, which allows drug companies to bring new drugs to clinical trial phase at a much quicker click. But Ryan, so, but you guys are sounding the alarm here because the quantum computing also enables something that may be a bit of a problem, and that's around the issue of uh, cryptography. The way all of our, the way I understand it, all of our data in our phones, what what protects our email, our uh, our financial transactions, is all protected by cryptography. But if I had access to a quantum computer, I could break all that cryptography pretty easily. So, but a quantum computer is not there yet; it can't decipher that information. So, why do I care right now? Well, I think the short answer to that is you should care right now precisely because it's not yet a problem that needs solving. I think one of the things that we encounter a lot in the policy world is policymakers and regulators don't actually try to address problems until they're knocking at their doorstep. And this is a problem that, while I admit we certainly did sound the alarm about this in that piece in a way, we also wanted to be relatively balanced in how we portrayed that potential harm. Because we're not actually close to a state where quantum cryptography is going to displace traditional RSA, healthy Duffman style encryption that is currently used in basically everything. So what we want to sort of portray here is the need for government to just start looking at the issue, to start considering how they're going to incorporate post-quantum safe cryptographic schemes in the things that they do, how they're going to promote best practices amongst members of industry, and how they're going to use it to harden their own systems in the future. The problem that we see here is, I think, primarily that not a lot of people are talking about this issue. We're talking a lot about the benefits of quantum computers. We're talking a lot about, you know, investments in quantum hardware and and talent scoping and things like that. But the idea that quantum computers at some point may potentially challenge our traditional encryption protocols is not a topic uh, front of mind and centered in this policy debate. So I think what we're trying to go for here is we're trying to just signal to policymakers that this is an issue that they should care about and they should be looking into it. 
even as industry has, I think, already done a relatively good job at developing a lot of best practices and incorporating some of these own post-quantum cryptographic schemes into their own best practices and industry standards. Yeah, I mean, good luck getting Congress to focus on a problem that's not knocking at the door. That <laughs> that is That is how they operate. But tell me a little bit more about what is at risk, because I guess the idea, as I understand it, is you know, whatever it is, my financial information, maybe it's maybe it's government military secrets. If they can get a hold of that encrypted information now, uh, they hold it until it's possible to decode it and at, at some point in the future, right? Yeah, no, I think you hit the nail on the head there, right? The idea is, so right now we have a variety of different cryptographic schemes that essentially protect everything from financial information in transit and at rest in you know cloud storage devices you have you know the government obviously is sending a lot of information you know using cryptographic schemes health information i mean you think of any type of sensitive information that needs to travel from point a to point b chances are current encryption is playing a role in protecting that information from nefarious actors getting access to it now, getting access to it is slightly different from being able to simply access the to read encrypted it. information. Just because you can yeah. get a hold of it doesn't mean you can read it. Exactly, right. So you can get a hold of the information. Technically skilled actors can get a hold of the information, but there's not a lot of point in just holding on to that information if you can't do anything with it. But in the future, theoretically, if a bad actor does get a hold of a lot of that information and they have a quantum computer that's powerful enough, they could theoretically break the encryption and they could read all of the information that they had been scooping up 10, 15, 20 years prior. Oh, wow. Well, some of the things you've talked about policymakers should consider doing quantum-safe cryptography, standards and infrastructure, these sorts of things that uh, commerce and other agencies in the government do work on. Uh, One of the other things you call for is to accelerate research, to bring the U.S. into a place where we're a leader a leader in quantum computing. What's what's going on there? What we're trying to communicate with that recommendation is building a quantum computer is not a simple task. I, I think that probably doesn't need to be stated <laughs> right. outright, right? It's not simple, um, but it, it's not simple for a lot of reasons that don't challenge us in other areas of you know technological development. Part of the challenge with building quantum systems is we don't have all of the necessary talent and know-how and hardware we need to build quantum systems here in the U.S. alone. We need access to a worldwide pool of researchers and talent and you know, producers. So we don't have sort of, if you will, an autarkic or independent supply chain domestically for quantum computers. And part of that is I think there hasn't been enough investment in building out those sorts of capabilities, those production capabilities here at home. And then, of course, there's the challenge of software for quantum computers. If you think of how we code in the simplest terms on something like the internet, use things like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and then you want to do fancier stuff. There are obviously other coding languages you can use. Those coding languages are designed specifically for use in classical computing systems. So we haven't actually arrived yet at a point where we have a robust ecosystem, even of the type of software we would imagine would be necessary to do some of this more detailed work on quantum computers. Does, does artificial intelligence play a role in that, in the coding part of the software? It could. 
theoretically, right? I mean, we hear stories all the time about how AI is actually helping to auto-generate code in certain contexts, and artificial intelligence certainly plays a role in basic research and development of not just software, but you know, hardware systems for things like not just quantum computers, but basically everything uh, in this day and age. I don't know if I would say that AI is sort of the the sine qua non of quantum computer development, though. I, I think a lot of what we're really talking about with research and investment in this space is research into sort of physical infrastructure and actual technical talent. Yeah. One of the crises that has reached Congress's door, you talked about its supply chain, particularly with semiconductors, uh, the computer chips that go into all of our current devices, everything from our phones to our cars. That's something Congress is trying to get its arms around right now. What is the supply chain for quantum computing? Does it differ in the semiconductors? What's the hardware look like? It's different, but it's also the same. A lot of what we're doing, at least here at IBM, is we're building our own kind of proprietary system. So we're using a lot of, I wouldn't say off-the-shelf hardware and things like that, but we exist within the supply chain as any other company does. And so I think the supply chain challenges that we're facing right now more broadly apply just as much to access to quantum information systems and sciences as it does anything else. But I don't think there are any unique challenges to the supply chain for quantum, apart from some of the broader challenges we have on sort of the talent and the technical know-how front and the access to the global research community. When you talk about a quantum circuit, does that differ from a traditional semiconductor? It does in ways that I would not even be remotely prepared (laughs) to be able to detail. We'll scratch scratch that question. Yeah, so IBM is at the forefront here. You guys have the Eagle processor. Google has the Sycamore processor. China's got something they're working on. It seems to be focused on a sort of a speed race right now. I could not tell from my uh, research. Uh, There's several different claims for who's the fastest, but maybe that doesn't even matter, does it? A lot of what we're doing right now, I think, is is more focused on adding qubits. So I think just a few weeks ago, we actually announced our recent 127 qubit quantum computer system. Later this year, we're anticipating announcing a 433 qubit system. And then by the end of 2023, we hope uh, our roadmap will continue with a quantum computer that has over 1,000 qubits in it. And I think focusing on the number of qubits in the system and its ability to remain relatively error-free is really where the attention should be, not so much on terms like quantum supremacy and and things like that. Right. And I just want to differentiate. The qubit you are talking about is not the measurement by which Noah built the ark, because that's all I can... It's Q-U-bits. Yes, Q-U-B-I-T. Yes, sir. Which is is sort of the the quantum formulation of, of the bit, which we're all familiar with, bits and bytes. Ryan, you know, I think it's really fascinating what you guys are doing. Klaus Schwab is the founder of the World Economic Forum, and I really liked one of his formulations here that we're in this fourth industrial revolution. The first where steam power mechanized production, the second where electric power made mass production possible, the digital revolution, which is the third, which in some respects we're still in, and now this fourth industrial revolution where this fusion of technologies sort of blurs the lines between physical, digital, and biological spheres. So uh, if you think about everything from the metaverse, which seems to dominate the conversation right now, 
computer brain interfaces, which I know you guys have done some work on. It's, it's really fascinating stuff. You talk about a quantum transition point. Are we reaching the point, whether for security purposes or the convenience factor, that we're going to be transitioning on a device level into a quantum future? You know, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I think what you're more likely to see in the near term, and this is an area where, where IBM has a lot of experience because we have the Q network. I think what you're likely to see is large institutions that you know have a lot of capital at their disposal to build these systems and maintain them are probably going to be offering quantum services via the cloud because the cloud has kind of been a game changer over the last 10 years or so for society. It makes it easier to access systems that we might otherwise you know, not want to spend money on ourselves. And you see it being adopted, especially at the enterprise level, across basically every industry that's using data. And that's literally every industry in this day and age, as you correctly pointed out with the fourth stage of the Industrial Revolution, right? You know, I don't think consumers should expect to see a quantum computer in their pocket or in their home anytime in the foreseeable future until maybe we get past sort of the early stages of enterprise adoption and use of the technology. It's not going to be until, I think, we start discovering newfound uses for quantum computers in literally everyday life when people actually start to have access to those types of systems. And I still think we're a ways off from that point. Well, it's really, I know it's a bit technical, but it's really fascinating stuff. And I really appreciate you coming in today to talk a little bit about it. Uh, maybe next time you can bring Watson. We can have a little <laughs> trivia night. That was fascinating stuff when he beat Ken Jennings in Jeopardy. Well, yeah, and, and since then we've actually had a debater version of Watson, which I think is actually a lot cooler. A system that not only responds you know, to trivia questions in the form of a question, <laughs> but can actually take spontaneous on-the-fly arguments being offered by opponents in the context of sort of a Lincoln and Douglas or a policy-style debate and actually formulate appropriate debate responses. So maybe it's better to bring that system. Holy cow. Guys, the future is here. I still don't have my flying car, but I really appreciate (laughs) Ryan Hageman, co-director of IBM's Policy Lab, joining me today on 14th and G. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to us on iTunes iHeart or Spotify. Ryan Hageman, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Thanks for having me, Dean. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's podcast, brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. For more, just type 14th and G podcast into your favorite search engine, or look for 14th and G wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker.